Our passage is 1 Samuel chapter 30, that's verses 1 through 31. If you'd like to follow along in the Bibles there in your seats, that's page 251. Next week will be the end of our series in 1 Samuel, and we will have a Christmas sermon and then go on to 1 Corinthians. But for almost a year now, we have been tracking God's people who needed deliverance from a time of evil leadership, who sought a king, and Saul was not the right kind of king, but God anointed through Samuel David, who if we were to read on in 2 Samuel, we see comes to be the type of king that God seeks. Now as we approach the end of the chapter and what we know will be the end of Saul's reign, as David returns from not going into battle with the Philistines, from not fighting against his own people, We see what God has for David and his people. Let's read together 1 Samuel 30, 1 through 31, where the Lord bless the reading of his holy word. Now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him because all the people were bitter in soul each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And David said to Abiathar, the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He answered him, pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. So David set out and the 600 men who were with him, and they came to the brook Basor, where those who were left behind stayed. But David pursued, he and 400 men, 200 stayed behind, who were too exhausted to cross the brook Basor. They found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David, and they gave him bread, and he ate. They gave him water to drink, and they gave him a piece of cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit revived. For he had not eaten or drunk water for three days and three nights. And David said to him, To whom do you belong? And where are you from? He said, I am a man of Egypt, a servant to an Amalekite. And my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. We had made a raid against the Negev of the Cherethites and against those which belonged to Judah and against the Negev of Caleb. And we burned Ziklag with fire. David said to him, Will you take me to this band? And he said, Swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you down to this band. And when he had taken him down, behold, they were spread abroad all over the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of the great spoil that they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day, and not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken, and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, 
whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and herds, and the people drove the livestock before him and said, This is David's spoil. Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow David and who had been left at the brook Basor. And they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near to the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, Because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. But David said, You shall not do so, my brothers. With what the Lord has given us, he has preserved us and given into our hands the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down into battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. And he made it a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. When David came to Ziklag, he sent part of the spoil to his friends, the elders of Judah, saying, Here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. It was for those in Bethel, in Ramoth, of the Negev, in Jatir, in Ararer, in Sifma, in Eshatomawa, in Rakal, in the cities of the Jeremelites, in the cities of the Kenites, in Horma, in Borashan, in Athak, in Hebron, for all the places where David and his men had roamed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Would you pray with me? Gracious God, we thank you for your word that we have read. We have heard it. But our prayer is that now we would seek understanding, to be shaped by it, by your spirit, that you would give us comprehension and a response of worship and our devotion to you and our lives lived for you. Would you use me for that purpose, to speak only that which you have for your people, and would all else quickly fade away? This we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. For those of you that have graduated high school and or college, let me just invite you back to remember your mascots. Maybe not everyone had one. Some of us may have been homeschooled or some schools don't have a mascot. But if you did, what mascot did you have? No raising of hands is necessary, but how many of you had some form of warrior? A Spartan, maybe. Maybe a crusader, uh, a cavalier, as I had, or a Viking. Or maybe you had some kind of dangerous animal, a, a bear, or wolves, cougars, tigers. What about bunnies, doves, or sheep? When it comes to athletic ventures, when it comes to mascots for schools, we like to think of ourselves as mighty, as invulnerable, as able to fight for ourselves, protect ourselves, present ourselves to those that would compete with us as strong. The mascot for God's people is not a bunch of cougars or tigers or Spartans, but sheep. Over and over again throughout Scripture, God describes his people as sheep, as those that are vulnerable, as those that are prone to wander, 
as those in need of protection from enemies, from wolves, those that need to be directed and provided for. And when God directs Samuel to the one that he is to anoint to replace Saul, the wrong kind of king that the people had called for themselves, when Samuel is sent to find a king to replace him, a king who will be after God's heart, God directs Samuel to a shepherd. David wasn't even among his brothers when Samuel went to Jesse looking for the future king. David was with the flocks. Now since those days, David has become a a mighty warrior. He's become bodyguard to the king. He has gathered to himself champions. He has fought off the Philistines and the Amalekites. He's become a mighty man. But he still has a flock to tend. Now for most of what we've read of David's life in 1 Samuel, he's struggled with personal challenges and dangers. To him, Saul's vendetta has been against David. He sought to take David's life. He sought to dispel him. It's been David's potential that has frightened the Philistines. But here in 1 Samuel 30, the threat is not to David, it's to the flock. To those that he has been leading and caring for and tending to. What do we see in David's response? As we anticipate the end of Saul's reign and the imminent installation of David, we see David shepherding, tending to his flock as it falls under attack. We see in David's response the type of king that God seeks to give his people and a pattern for the type of king that God would want of, for his people to come after this king. We find a shepherd king. A king who is not upset that his people are vulnerable, but goes after them to rescue them and bring them back from the attacks of their opponents. David sets a pattern for himself and for those that will come after him of what kind of king God wants. A king who shepherds his people. And we find in David, as we read through 1 Samuel 30, a shepherd who is himself shepherded. We find in him a shepherd who doesn't tend just the flock that he has before him, but pursues his sheep. We find a generous shepherd. In David as a shepherd king, we find a shepherd who is first shepherded himself. Remember, David and his men had marched with the Philistines because the Philistines were going to attack Israel and We read last week how God spared David from being set upon by the Philistines or having to fight against his own people. But in going up with the Philistines, that took them far from home. And so as they come back, as we open up in chapter 30, as they return to Ziklag where they've been living for over the last year, they have been marching for over 50 miles. For probably three days, they have been marching home with their military equipment. Worn out, tired to find their home decimated. Their city burned with fire, their flocks gone, and their loved ones missing. 
Fortunately, they're not dead, but they are either going to become the slaves of the Amalekites or sold off into slavery. And as verse 4 says, so distressing is this, that the men with David, these hardened battle warriors, as we would in their circumstance, exhaust themselves with grief. Their strength is exhausted. And in their grief, once they've expended their sadness and all their energy on their grief, their grief turns to anger and the men turn on David. With no other enemies in sight to take their wrath out on, they turn against their leader and it says they want to stone him. They want to put him to death in the midst of their grief and anguish. So often we like to look to someone to blame in our sadness and our grief. And so it seems like David is their target. Meanwhile, David himself has lost his own family. If you'll remember, this is the second time. David had to flee from Michael's house, his first wife, whom he loved, because Saul was after him. And as he was continued to be pursued by Saul, who wanted to put him to death, eventually Saul married off Michael to another man. He's already lost one wife, and now his second and third wife have been taken. And now his life is threatened, even as he himself is grieving. The typical response in such a situation of exhaustion, both emotional and physical, in the midst of such danger might be to fly, the option of flight, to take off, to escape, to freeze in indecision and overwhelming emotion, or to fight back and say, how dare you, I am the future king, I am the great slayer of Goliath, you're going to stone me? David doesn't go with any of those options. Instead, he turns to the Lord. Verse 7, But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. He found strength not within himself. He didn't use his strength to defeat those who were raising their voices against him. He didn't give up for his lack of knowledge or lack of ability, but he turns to God for strength. He doesn't know where to look. He doesn't know where to find them. But we know he finds strength in the Lord. And we're not sure how he does it. It doesn't say whether he prayed or whether he went to reflect on the word or he just meditated. But we know that the source of the strength that would carry him forth in the pursuit of those that were taken from them came from the Lord. And knowing that the Lord was his strength, the way for him to go forward in the midst of his great anguish and pain and danger, he seeks the Lord's guidance. Not only is God his strength, but once his strength is restored, does he say, okay, I'm better now. I've gone off. I've had a sabbatical. I'm rested. I'm refreshed. Now I've got it all under control. Now the purpose of that strengthening is so he can continue to rely on God as he goes to God in guidance. As he is strengthened in the Lord, then he calls to the priest, Abiathar, and says, bring the ephod that I might consult the umim and the thumim. And so God answers his request and tells him that, yes, you will be able to find them. Yes, you will pursue them. Yes, you will be able to rescue them. He gets an answer. 
Now contrast that with Saul, who had trusted his intuition over God's explicit commands, who found himself killing the priest so that he was cut off from this type of consultation with God, who likely on the same very day as this is happening is consulting the medium in Endor. Remember a few weeks ago we talked about how the timeline is messed up. It opens up with Saul looking at the great crowd of the Philistine army, which happens after David had gone up with him. So it is quite possible that as David is consulting the Lord about how to rescue those taken from him, that Saul is consulting one who consorts with evil spirits. David rather has listened to Samuel the great prophet when he was around. He listened to the godly advice of his best friend, Jonathan. He listened to the wise words of Abigail when she sought to intervene when David was going to make a rash decision. But most importantly, he leaned on the Lord as his strength and his guidance. David is a hero leader in the sense that he has done heroic things, but he does not lead through self-dependent heroics. All that he has done, he has done out of the might of the Lord in whom he trusts. His leadership is based on his dependence on the Lord his God. So many of us that seek help often find the most helpful people to be those themselves that have needed help. Teachers who struggled to learn when they were younger to read, who found, because they were cared for by another teacher, a love of learning and reading, and so want to pass that on to us. Or counselors who have known grief or addiction or depression, and finding counsel from someone who listened to them and cared for them, now have sought to care for others in the midst of their mental anguish and pain. Missionaries, Pastors who walked far from God but heard the gospel and so want to share that with others. So it is with the king. The king who wants to lead God's people well starts off by being led by God. The king was to look to God and God's way for guidance and so it was when the king and the line of David appeared that the one who came in Jesus would be like David, who Jesus, who started his earthly ministry fasting and praying, seeking the Lord, who throughout his ministry would withdraw so that he could pray, who when he was with the woman at the well and his disciples asked if he was not hungry, he said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. For on the night before, he was to endure death and place upon himself the guilt for our sins went to pray to his father at Gethsemane. Even the eternal word of God, the only perfectly obedient human being who had the power at work in him as the one who made the world, even our Savior King knew that the most powerful place to be was in the embrace of his loving Father doing his will. Even as Jesus is calling us to himself for salvation, he is pointing us to the heavenly Father, just as the king of God's people seeks to shepherd them by being shepherded by the God who is their true shepherd. 
the greatness of our king is ultimately in pointing us to God for strength, guidance, and assurance. God gives Israel a king to point to himself and a Messiah who does the same. And so in whatever place we are to lead, whether we lead in our business, whether we lead as parents or teachers, whether we are managers, whether we are deacons or elders, we don't do it in our strength. But we are meant to lead as we have been led by those who rightly lean not on their strength, but on the strength of the Lord as shepherded shepherds. David leans on God for strength. He leans on God for, God for guidance. God responds, and then he pursues. David is a pursuing shepherd. Let's just keep in mind what I mentioned, that he and his men have marched for over 50 miles, probably been on the road for 30 days, and now David takes his men in pursuit of their families and property. I'll consider that task. They don't know where they've gone. This is before they run into the Egyptian. They just know we have been raided. There are Amalekites. They presume out there we need to find them. What direction to go? Will they find their trail? Will they find their people? David is committing to a search. And just think of us. Think of how difficult it is. We recently read in the newspaper or online of people searching for hikers in our own mountains with satellite phones, with GPS technology. How hard is it to find a person who is missing when we know where they're missing and we have all this technology? How much more to track down a bunch of people who have gone in who knows what direction? But David has committed to take his men to pursue those that have been taken. David has, by God's kindness, been assured that he will overtake him, but he doesn't know what that is going to entail. So he sets out trusting the Lord, committing to find these people, to do what it takes. And that commitment to search high and low through the region for a band of Amalekites that could be virtually anywhere. And as they set out, they march another 15 or so miles when they come to the brook Basor. And after those three days of hiking, after 15 more days of hiking with military gear because they are pursuing those that have taken their loved ones, some of the men are just emotionally and physically wiped out. They can't keep going. And so some of those, some 200 of the 600, are left behind to watch over the baggage. If these military-hardened men are so wiped out, we can only imagine what difficulty there is for the remaining 400 for David to keep going in their grief to keep going in their anger and yet they do and God providentially brings them upon the Egyptian slave who provides them information to find them and then when they find the Amalekites God blesses David and his band with the ability to bring it to completion that it makes clear that they recover all those who were lost. Man and woman and child, all of their property is restored. David doesn't stop when his own wives are recovered. He doesn't stop when his own treasure is recovered. He doesn't stop until all that has been entrusted to him as the one who leads these people is brought back to them. 
Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. David pursues what has been lost. All of it. God honors the pursuit with complete victory and a complete recovery of all those who were lost. Because this is how David learned to be a shepherd. This is not the first time that something like this has happened in David's life. When David went to Saul, when all of Israel was in distress because of the Philistines and this big giant of a brute named Goliath was hurling insults at them and at God, David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I gave it up for lost. I mourned and moved on. I said, too bad, so sad. No, he said, I went after him and I struck him and I delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. And on one hand, what David is conveying there is his military prowess, his ability to take on bears and lions. But at the same hand, he is demonstrating his commitment to rescue the lost, to pursue the taken. Whether we are attacked to be carried off, whether we are lost or wandering, God has given his people a pursuing shepherd. First for Israel in David, and then for us in Christ. One that seeks us, whether in the grips of the wild beast or in the grips of our obstinate waywardness. So often in our presentation of God or our projections about him, we tend to think that he is waiting for us to come to him when we have it together. Sometimes we are prone to think that God despises our weakness. But so very often, it's not our weakness of which we must repent, but our assumed strength, our assumption that God will receive us when we can figure it out, when we can clean up our lives, when we can appear happy, healthy, and prosperous, a good little Christian, then God will receive us. Praise the Lord that he doesn't wait for us to figure it out. Praise the Lord that he doesn't wait for sheep to stop being sheep. But he pursues the wandering and the helpless that the Lord doesn't wait for a knock on heaven's door, but the eternal Son of God walks out the door of heaven down the pathway into the wilderness of this sinful and broken world to reclaim the sheep, to snatch them out of the devouring lion Satan's jaws, to rescue them out of the strength-stealing swamp of addiction and depression, to pull to shore those who are barely keeping their heads above water as we try to make our lives about keeping up with the next trend, the next health fad, the next fashion, the next iPhone that we have to buy. A shepherd so committed that he lays down his life for the sheep that chose to wander. How fitting that the first invitation to come and behold the newborn king of Israel in Bethlehem was to shepherd. 
God has given for His people. A king who will be a shepherd king who is shepherded by God first, who pursues His people for their rescue, and who reveals Himself to be a generous shepherd. A gracious shepherd. We, we start with seeing this with David's encounter with the Egyptian slave. Now on one hand, there's just the general kindness and compassion of, of giving a starving and thirsting man food and water. And we might say, well, yes, he's just trying to get some information out of him. But what is described as being given to him is more than a typical soldier's ration. It is a generous amount of food. They're not just saying, I hope this guy survives long enough to tell us where our friends and family have gone, but they seek to see him restored to strength and health. And when it is discovered who he is, the graciousness of David continues, because as far as they know, this might just be a wandering guy who might have seen a big band of Amalekites go by. But he belongs to the Amalekites. And notice he says the word we when he describes the attacks. Even if it was against his will, he is somehow complicit in the attack on Ziklag and the carrying off of these men's family and possessions. He says, Swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master and I will take you down to this band. Verse 16 says, And when he had taken him down, it doesn't tell us David's response, but it is inferred. David spares him. That David brings him in and feeds for feeds him and cares for him. He upholds God's law about the treatment of the alien and the sojourner, even when this alien and sojourner had, by his actions, even outside of his control, become an enemy. But the real expression of David's generosity comes when the victory is won. Not only does God graciously restore all that was lost, they get their families back, they get their possessions back, but there's more. There's what the Amalekites had taken from Philistine settlements and other cities beyond their own. There was what the Amalekites had for themselves. In fact, the Amalekites were probably so excited by all of the riches they had. And remember, the Philistines have all gathered for battle against Israel, so they have found a number of helpless towns, and they are rich. And this is why David comes on them. They're, they're dancing, they're excited, they're probably drunk and all spread out rather than in military formation. And so when David and his men defeat them, they don't only, not only get back what was already theirs, but so much more. And as they begin to head for home, as they connect with those that they left behind with at the brook base where some of the men say, yeah, you can get your wives and your children back but we won the battle. The sheep, the cattle, the gold, that belongs to us. We fought the battle. And what does David do? David says, may it not be. Why is it that he's unwilling? Why does he demand that those who fought the battle share with those who stayed behind with the baggage? He says, this. His contribution is, is in describing what they have. He says, you shall not do this, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. 
He has preserved us and has given into our hand the band that came against us. Verse 23 shows us that David's willingness to be generous with the spoils of war, that according to the rules and traditions of that region and in that day rightly belonged to them, that David said, this is not what we have earned, this is what God has given. And if God has given it to us, why should we withhold similar generosity to our own people? And in fact, David makes it a rule that whether you're the one at the spear's point or whether you are the one handling the logistics, you're setting up the food tent, you're watching over the baggage, you're, you're fixing the trucks, that you have a similar share in the blessings that result from war. Why is it? Because think of what it would have been for them to fight for a share in the money. How would that impact the future armies of Israel to be motivated by money? It would destroy the function of the army. David has not been anointed to win battles or wage wars or to increase the wealth of the nation. He has been anointed to care for God's people. Where Saul tried to use land and wealth among his favorites to induce obedience, David distributes wealth not only to those who fought with him, but to some of the same places that had been bespoiled themselves. Not only to those in Judah, but to cities of the Calebites, to cities that were owned by the Levites and the priestly clan. David says we'd go out to fight not for ourselves, we'd go out to fight who? He describes it as he shares the spoils. They went and fought the enemies of the Lord. We fight those God has sent us to fight. We don't fight so that we can enrich ourselves. And the result is a united nation under the blessing of what God provides. The shepherd feeds the sheep. The whole flock, not just those that are close, not just those that are strong, but they tend to the frail and they tend to the distant. And this shepherd even gathers into the flock strangers like the Egyptian to share and the blessing, and the benefit. As David's descendant, Jesus, the future king, gathers the lost sheep, he feeds them. He feeds them physically, those that are hungry, the 5,000, to hear his word. He restores the strength of the sick, he heals their wounds, and he saves them. And part of that includes sharing what is his. Jesus comes as our shepherd, not just to rescue us, but to bless us. He invites us to join in the kingdom, not just as citizens or as slaves, but as joint heirs with the rightful king to share in his spoils. Ephesians 4, as it describes the gifts of the body of Christ, speaks of Christ who leads a train of captives in victory. Jesus has won the victory over sin, death, and the evil one. And he shares his gifts with the church so that they could be built up. Ephesians 4.12, he gives the gifts not so that the best and the strongest and the most deserving would grow richer, stronger, more powerful. No, for the purpose of Ephesians 4.12, the building up of the body. He gives us different tasks. He gives us different gifts. He gives us different members. But just as David gives a share to those too tired, too exhausted to go beyond Basor, 
So he instructs us in 1 Corinthians 12, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. The shepherd cares not just for those that can benefit him, the shepherd leads for the benefit of his people. That they can share in his power, that they can share in his blessing. When we see the generosity of the king, then it causes us to in turn be generous to others. Just as David sees the generosity of God in delivering the victory in this battle and returning what was lost in making them rich, so he sees God's care to be reflected in his own generous care for others. Jesus didn't come to reward the strong, but to bless the weak to graciously bestow on all those he calls the gift of God, the forgiveness of sins, the rest for weary, healing for the sick, so that we would be bound together, so that we would all share in the glory of being the people of God. The church is not a bunch of mercenaries. We are, as one theologian put it, a bunch of beggars showing other beggars where to find bread. And that's true, but not just bread but the blessing of sitting at the wedding feast of the Lamb, who is himself the shepherd king. Brothers and sisters, it should not surprise us that the king after God's own heart, the king God gives Israel and David, and the king that God gives all of us in Jesus Christ is a shepherd, because the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, for I have, shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. If David could say that of the Lord, how much more can we, who have seen the great shepherd Jesus Christ, our King, say these words, rejoice in these words, and be shepherded by our King? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you send a King to deliver us a king whose goal is to point us towards you and your provision, your strength, and your direction, and whom in Christ we find not just the, the forgiveness of our sins, but the invitation to life everlasting and all the treasures that are his. Lord, thank you for sending us such a king. In Christ's name, amen.